going to look at a theme. Uh, so there are several passages that we're going to be looking at, but I'm going to tell you a couple of accounts in the Old Testament and show how they all tie together. Um, of course, the theme of this uh, Bible study is how the Old Testament scriptures testify, bear witness and point to Christ. Uh, God is in the business of revealing himself, and he reveals himself gradually as much as our senses and abilities are able to absorb and understand. Uh, and so he has finally uh, revealed himself to us in his Son. But even then, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see him face to face. Uh, so there's still much more knowledge to be had. If Christ's love for us is infinite then that means that we will spend all of eternity learning the depth of Christ's love and never exhaust it. And that's a wonderful thought. Um, so let's begin by looking at Genesis chapter 22. I'll read through verse 19 of Genesis chapter 22. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here am I. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad, lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering and instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing will I bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Abraham had heard the voice of the Lord enough to recognize when God was speaking. He understood that. He knew this command was from the Lord. 
That didn't make it any easier. It says the Lord tested Abraham. The Lord is still polishing Abraham's faith uh, to make it shine. Um, it isn't so that God would know Abraham's faith. Abraham's faith came from God, and so Abraham, God knew what that faith was. It was for us to see something very, very important, as we're going to see. From Abraham's perspective, it was a test on whether or not he believed as we read in Romans 4, whether he truly believed in the power of God, is God able to keep his promises even if he would need to raise the dead to do so? Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham did believe that. He reckoned that God was able to raise the dead. Here's what Abraham knew. He knew that the Savior, the Lamb of God, who was going to take away the sins of the world, was going to come through Isaac. The Redeemer of the world would come through Isaac. He knew that. God told him that, and God cannot lie. He also knew that God told him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and God cannot lie. Those two seemingly contradict each other. Abraham resolved it as much as he could in his mind by saying, well, God is able to raise the dead, and therefore, I'm going to step forward in faith and I'm going to do what God has commanded me to do, uh, even though it's brutally hard. What we're going to see as we go through this morning, what I would like to see or this evening in our study is that God provides the sacrifice. This was Abraham's faith. God will provide the sacrifice. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve uh, God told Adam that the day he ate the fruit, he would surely die. He ate the fruit, but he didn't die. The first recorded death that we see in Scripture is the death of the animal that was nameless. Uh, we know that this animal was, the life of the animal was taken so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And then the very next chapter we read about Cain and Abel offering sacrifices according to the law. So, we know that God appointed at the very beginning of human history, as soon as the fall was done, God graciously provided a substitute. God allowed a substitute to take the place of the sinner who had sinned. God constituted the world. He constituted humankind like that. The term we use is covenantally under a covenant head. God allowed a substitute to take the place of the sinner. He did not make any such provision for the angels. The angels were not created of one blood. Every angel is individual, whereas all humankind is of one blood in Adam. So in Adam all die, as Paul tells us, just as in Christ all will be made alive. But I'm foreshadowing now. You see how I did that. All we know now is in Adam all died. But God revealed that he will allow a substitute. As time continues, it doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out that this bull and this goat that you're offering on an altar isn't actually taking away sin. It's got to be offered the next day. At the temple, it had to be offered every day. You were still a sinner. You still carried around with you the weight of your sins and this incessant 
desperate need to atone for your sins. Much of humankind is governed by this need to atone and cover our sinful nature somehow. Uh, we have all learned the uh, character of hiding in the bushes and hiding behind fig leaves uh, that Adam and Eve perfected. That's all of humankind. We all have that. But God is in the business of calling us out of the bushes to provide the sacrifice himself. So back to our account, as history starts to progress, as history continues generation after generation, the few faithful that are in pockets here and there, Noah, Adam and Eve, uh, Abel, Seth, uh, Terah, probably, Abraham, there's these little pockets of believing God's promise and this looking forward to the Redeemer that God would provide. God told the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. And that's what they longed for. So now there's this, all of Abraham's hopes are pinned on Isaac, the promised seed. He knows it's not a mistake. God said, this is the promised seed. There's not another one coming. It was Isaac. Isaac was it. This was the promise. All his other children, he gave gifts and sent them away. But Isaac was the promised one. And God says to sacrifice him. So Abraham says to himself, God is able to raise the dead. And so he packs up his donkeys, he packs up his servants, he packs up the wood, he takes Isaac, and they head off into the mountains of Moriah, where God will show him a mountain. Uh, so they head in that direction, a two days journey. Can you imagine those two days of dragging through the woods? dragging through the wilderness, heading towards those mountains with that heavy, heavy heart, wondering, is God going to speak? When's God going to put a stop to this? Is God going to put a stop to this? Is God going to put a stop to this? And continuing to go hour after hour after hour for two full days. Finally, he sends the rest of his servants away. You can see him looking up to heaven and going, um, are you going to put a stop to this? Okay, then he takes Isaac and the wood and the fire and he heads up the mountain that God shows him. Lord, are you going to put a stop to this? He builds an altar. Isaac says to him, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Now, all the times that I read this as a child, I read Abraham's answer as just a simple brush off for Isaac, of course not wanting to tell Isaac what's going to happen. I think possibly because of how I was raised, we're very familiar with the answer that was given to get us to leave dad alone. Um, and uh, perhaps that was it, that, that Abraham didn't have an answer. And so he said, um, yeah, God's going to provide it. Just uh, shh, leave me alone, I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> that was, uh, that's how I read this as a kid. And then as I got older and I understood this and I read this more and more, I realized that that's not what Abraham is doing. Abraham is making a profession of his faith. He is absolutely assured of the substitutionary principle of atonement. God will provide a sacrifice. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know how it's going to work out. I have no idea how this is going to be solved, but God is going to provide a sacrifice. And so Isaac says, all right. So they head up the hill, and then the scripture is silent on Isaac's response. Um, but Abraham binds his son, lays him on the altar, lifts up the knife 
uh, to bring it down on Isaac. And the angel calls out of heaven, stops the knife, um, and says, Now I know. Uh, and of course, God knew before. It was for Abraham's perspective. But even more than that, there was something else more going on. In a very uh, quick passage that you read through quickly when you're a child, you breathe a sigh of relief. Whew, oh, okay, Abraham saved by the bell at the last minute. That's all awesome. And then you read past the next few verses as if that was a sideline. That's the heart of the issue, the next few verses. When God, when Abraham calls the name of the place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. Uh, the Lord will see to it, literally in the Hebrew. And then he says, and this becomes a statement for all the faithful down through the centuries, in the mount of the Lord, God will see to it. That is something we should all take into our hearts and hold in our hearts because the rest of Scripture is going to fill that in. But that is a tremendous profession of faith. And it goes back to the ram that Abraham finds. Abraham, as soon as the trial is done with his son, he lifts up his eyes and he sees in the thicket a ram that's caught. And so he takes the ram and he offers the ram as a sacrifice. But notice what he says in verse 13. It says, Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Don't miss that. He doesn't say, and he offered up that as a burnt offering in thanksgiving for what God has done. He offered it up as a burnt offering in praise to the Lord and in gratitude to the Lord. So there was a place for all of that. But what he did is he offered it up in place of his son. It was a substitute for his son. And so his statement in the mount, mount of the Lord, God will provide, there is the beginning glimpse of what we now call substitutionary atonement, that this ram took the place of Isaac. But it wasn't complete because Abraham pointed to another time and another place using the future tense of this Hebrew verb. He didn't say the Lord had provided. He said the Lord will provide. It's incomplete action. It's looking towards something that hasn't been accomplished yet. In the mount of the Lord, God will provide. So they head back home. The centuries pass. Everywhere Abraham goes, he offers another sacrifice. He offers the sacrifice in the place of sinners just as God commanded him to, in faith, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice that God himself would provide. So that faith was at the very beginning. Abraham did not offer sacrifices the way that the pagans offered sacrifices. The pagans offered sacrifices. We get a glimpse into it at Mount Carmel with the Baal worshipers jumping all over the mountain, cutting themselves and dancing, and Elijah there making fun of them. Well, jump harder, dance louder, yell more. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's off somewhere. If you read through Greek or Roman or Norse or Babylonian mythology, how many of the stories are the gods off having sex or falling asleep or having a banquet or not caring or fighting against each other and you have to get their attention if you can 
but chances are you wouldn't even be able to get their attention. But if you offered all the right sacrifices perfectly and you shouted loud enough and you yelled loud enough and you cut yourself enough and you got enough people together to pray to shout down the deafness of God, then perhaps God will hear you. And a lot of times we, even today, have this so ingrained in us that we think of God in the same way as kind of like an angry indifferent taskmaster who doesn't pay attention to us unless we do enough good works, offer enough sacrifices. Notice Abraham's sacrifice was not offered in that spirit. He offered the ram in place of his son looking forward to the lamb that God himself would provide. In the mount of the Lord God will provide. This is what we mean that we, when we say the sacrifices of the Old Testament were only acceptable if they were offered in faith. The believers of the Old Testament were saved the same way that we are now. They looked forward to what God would provide in the Lamb of God, what they saw in shadow and in types, while we look back to the completed work of Christ. But here... Jesus himself interprets this for the Pharisees when he tells the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. This is where Abraham saw the day of Jesus Christ by faith. He was the one promised. He was the one that would ultimately take the sins of the world. Now, we're going to go to another account. The next account is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Um, if you've read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, you'll notice that the chronicles overlap the same history uh, of uh, David and the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. But one thing you'll notice is that the kings of Israel and Judah, when you're looking at First and Second Kings, they spend about an equal amount of time on Israel as well as on Judah, the northern kingdom and on the southern kingdom. And it's about their wars and about their apostasies and about their fightings and all of this. The focus is the same history but a different kind of focus, more on the politics, the armies, the two kingdoms fighting together, where the chronicles have only one theme. That's the building of the temple. The Chronicles is heavily focused on the nation of Judah. Israel, the northern kingdom, is only brought in to illustrate what's going on in Judah. And there's a heavy emphasis on the genealogies, on the priesthood, on David and the order of the temple building, and, and how all of that developed. So there's a lot more information in Chronicles that's not in First and Second Kings. So I would like to take you to a, an event in First Chronicles. The parallel passage is in Second Samuel 24. This is First Chronicles 21. Um, and instead of reading this, I'm just going to tell you the account. It starts out by saying, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. When you go back to 2 Samuel, you read that God was angry with Israel and he incited David to number Israel. So who was it? Was it God or was it the devil? Well, we know that, the, that God uses the devil to bring judgment on people as well as to um, stir them up and to... Uh, uh, purge them. We see how God uses Satan. Satan can't do anything other than uh, what God gives him permission to. Uh, but the point that I want to stress here without getting sidetracked into spiritology and talking about demonology and all that, the point that I want to talk about is that Israel, 
the backdrop of Israel here in this account is not that Israel is a whole bunch of innocent people who are bearing the brunt of God's unjust anger. It's God is justly angry with the entire nation of Israel. And God is justly angry with David. He incites David to count the nation of Israel. Now here's the interesting thing about this passage. God nowhere explains what Israel did to make him angry. And God also doesn't tell us what David did to make him angry. You have to speculate because there isn't anything in the law forbidding a king from counting his people. There are instructions when he goes in to, to number his people that he's to collect a half shekel tax for the temple. But we don't know if David did that or if David didn't do that. All we know is that David numbered the people and made the Lord angry. We also know that the nation of Israel sinned against God. Now, in reading the accounts, especially if you go back to First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you can see time after time after time Israel lapsing back into idolatry, in rebellion, in anger. They turned their back on David and followed after Absalom so quickly. They were quirky. They were sinful. They were wicked. They were unstable. Uh, so you don't have to look too deeply to find out what Israel did. Israel was a nation of sinners just like every other nation. And this is crucial to the story that I'm going to tell because this whole account takes place on the backdrop of sin and wickedness. It doesn't take place in a group of innocent people that are just minding their own business. It takes place in a wicked people that are justly deserving the wrath of God. God is looking for an opportunity against them. And so he, but as we're going to see, as Paul says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So when David announces his plan to number the people, Joab gets angry. That gives us a little bit of a clue as to perhaps what the problem was. Joab says um, in uh, verse 3, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be the cause of guilt in Israel? Perhaps it was David's pride that he began acting like the kings of the earth where he wanted to see how many people were under his command and how many people were loyal to him. Um, and he forgot that this was God's kingdom and not David's kingdom. And it sounds as if this is what Absalom is seeing. But the point is, it isn't the particular sin that's the problem. It's the sin all of us have inherited from Adam. All of us are justly under the death penalty of God. Justly, because Adam sinned. And all of us have sinned as well. So, the king's word prevails against Joab. He goes out and he numbers the people. And then, God gets angry. And he strikes Israel. And first thing you say is, well, that's not fair. It was David's sin. But all of God's ways are fair. All of God's ways are just. Remember, the whole thing started because God was angry with Israel because of their sins. Whatever those sins might be. And so, David cries out to the Lord and he says, I have sinned greatly because I've done this thing. Now forgive my iniquity. And God tells David, choose three things, one of three things for yourself. You can decide which one you want to do. You can uh, have seven years of famine. Uh, there's a little bit of a discrepancy in the numbers. I don't think it's crucial to, 
try to sort it all out. A, a, a period of famine, you can pick a period of time where you're going to be fleeing and running from your enemies, or uh, I can send pestilence, disease. A plague or a pestilence falling on Israel is them falling into the hands of God rather than falling into the hands of each other, which the other two would be. And David says, let me fall into the hands of God, for God's mercy is great, unlike the mercy of men. Um, and so he does understand God's mercy. And we're going to see how this story ends up, because it sounds like, because we're human beings and we have a huge problem thinking about the justice of God, it sounds like God is just being arbitrarily angry. But remember, the backdrop of this is a nation that deserves to be wiped out. God did not have to provide a substitute for Adam. He didn't have to provide a substitute for anyone. But the fact is this, if God does not provide a substitute, all of us are dead. Because we're all under the death penalty and God cannot wink at sin. God cannot pretend that he's not holy. He can't say, well, you sin this time, but I'm going to let it go. The soul that sins shall die. That's the heart of justice. And you look at it this way. We'd explain it to someone who doesn't quite understand this. Because, of course, obviously we have a problem with God's justice because we're sinners. But think about it this way. Suppose your family is killed uh, by a murderer who's burst into your home. He's got a gun and he shot everybody in your home. And now he stands before a judge. And the judge says, yeah, you're guilty. You're found guilty. You, I know you did it. You know you did it. Everybody knows you did it. But you know what? You seem like a nice guy. I'm going to let you go this time. Uh, just try not to do anything like that again. Is that a just act? Well, of course it's not a just act. Um, and God is always just. And his standard is his standard, which is good and beautiful and pure and holy. We can't even satisfy our guilty consciences at night. How can we stand before a holy God? That's the backdrop of this. And so God sends his angel of death with the sword. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the Garden of Eden, where the sword is standing there blocking the way to the tree of life and to the presence of God. You can't enter into the presence of God because there's a sword in the way. And the sword of death must fall before presence with God can be entered. Let that sink in a little bit. We are miserable creatures because we were created to be in God's presence. We aren't in His presence because there's a sword in the way. If that sword is not taken away, we will never be in His presence. And God can't take the sword away because God is just. The principle of substitution means God will provide a lamb. We can't do it. Only God can take that sword away. So let's go back to our account. The angel is moving through Israel. He kills 70,000 of them and he comes to a place that we call the threshing floor of Arana. Other places it's called the threshing floor of Ornan. Um, I think in Chronicles it's called Ornan. I'll use that, it's easier to pronounce. It's a threshing floor. It's where Ornan, he'll gather his... Ornan is not an Israelite, he's a Jebusite. 
um, there were pockets of Canaanites throughout the land. And he's a Jebusite. This is a place where there's a building where you keep the grain, but outside there's a flat area. And in this flat area, you take all your wheat stalks or your grain stalks and you throw them down on the flat area. Then you beat it with sticks or march donkeys over it or whatever you got to do to separate the grain from the from the, the straw, the chaff. And then you get a big pitchfork, you throw it up in the air, the wind blows away the straw and the chaff, and the wheat falls back down to the ground. And then you gather it up into your barn. And this was done in a very solid, packed, flat area called the threshing floor. This threshing floor is owned by a Jebusite. The angel of death is visible. He's going through the, uh, the nation of Israel, killing, 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 killing. He gets to the threshing floor of Ornan, and his sword is in the air, ready to come down. That sword is ready to strike, and God says, it's enough, stop. But the sword isn't put away yet. The four sons of Ornan freak out, run away and hide, obviously. Ornan stands there and he sees David coming and he goes what on earth is going on here here's this angel halfway between heaven and earth holding a sword ready to strike after slaughtering 70,000 that sword is ready to strike and here comes David terrified with his men and Ornan falls on his face in front of David and says what do you need and David says I want to buy this threshing floor I want to offer a sacrifice here and Ornan says, take the threshing floor, I'll give it to you, I'm out of here. David says, no, I'm paying for it with my money, I'm buying the sacrifice with my money, because it's not going to cost me nothing. And so he buys the threshing floor, he pays for it, he buys the sacrifice, he offers the sacrifice, and as soon as the sacrifice, the smoke of the sacrifice ascends to God, God speaks to the angel, and the angel sheaths the sword. Think about that. The sword goes down because the wrath of God fell on the sacrifice, not on the people. And then David says something astounding. In the very first verse, the very next chapter of chapter 22, verse 1, says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. This is the exact same place where Solomon will build the temple. The reason this account is in both Samuel and Chronicles is it's telling us how God chose and showed David which place he was going to place his name. It was right here. It says at the end of chapter 21 it says David could not go before the altar. The altar, the, the, sorry, the Holy of Holies that Moses built in the wilderness was in Gibeah. David wasn't able to go there. He wasn't able to inquire of the Lord because he was terrified of this sword in his way. He had to offer the sacrifice there, not where the tabernacle was. So think about that. What God is saying with that is, this is where you're going to inquire of the Lord. This is where I'm going to meet with my people. This is where you're going to offer your burnt sacrifices, right there. And David knew that. And so he offered 
the sacrifice right there. In the middle of death, in the middle of sin, misery, idolatry, death, slaughter, rape, abuse, persecution, torture, greed, filth, robbery, all of the above. God comes in judgment, but his grace is so much greater than his judgment that he provides even for Israel a sacrifice that looks forward. Notice that sins weren't completely taken away because David again said, this is where it will be. The temple will be. He's still looking forward. His son will build the temple, Solomon, on this place. And here's an interesting thing. In, when Solomon begins to build the temple, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And where have we read about Mount Moriah before? Centuries earlier, the same spot where Abraham said, On the mount of the Lord, God will provide. And now this is the same spot. The temple of the Lord is built there in anticipation. Here's the beauty of all of this. As the centuries go by, there's a lot of ceremonies, a lot of feasts, a lot of gatherings in Jerusalem. There's a lot of discourses. There's a lot of, there's going to be destruction. There's going to be uh, sacrilege. There's going to be rebuilding. There's going to be so much drama that's taking place in the temple that by the time it gets to Christ, the Pharisees, the religious experts, missed the whole point of the temple. Remember, Jesus had to run all the money changers out and remind them, it is written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. Here at that temple, this was the place where the sacrifices were offered so that men and women and children could stand in the presence of God and live. And yet it was simply a picture. This is why the whole thing was surrounded with images from Eden. Do you ever wonder why the cherubim are over the, the Ark of the Covenant? Because the cherubim were over the dwelling place of God in Eden. Adam looked back and saw cherubim. The cherubim weren't holding the sword. The cherubim were back where they used to meet with God. The sword blocked the way to where the cherubim were. There's no entrance to where God is. The way is guarded by the sword. He's attended by the cherubim. But the whole thing was surrounded with tapestries of pomegranates and, and vines and fruits and all these sky blue over the top and all this beautiful imagery and these beautiful figures that God is now meeting with his people and dwelling with his people. But it's not quite yet, is it? Because every day those sacrifices had to be offered. Even when this beautiful temple was built, even when this beautiful temple was offered, built up and dedicated to the Lord. Did you count how many animals Solomon killed and offered that day? Tens of thousands. Can you imagine the stench, the blood flowing in the streets, the ugliness of sin being purged away while this temple is being dedicated? And even all of that wasn't enough to take away the sins of the world. 
because Abraham's prophecy still had not yet taken place. On the mount of the Lord, God will provide. Then John the Baptist comes baptizing. The ceremony signifying the cleansing of sin. You need to be cleansed. The kingdom of God is coming. Cleansed? What do you mean cleansed? The Pharisees were furious. We don't need cleansed. Sinners need to be cleansed, not us. And then John sees Jesus. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God has came. God provided. God provided. He was taken outside on Golgotha. He was crucified at the place of the skull. And the point of the whole thing is so that we might know that God really did provide. God really did take away sin. He didn't potentially take away your sin and my sin. He took away our sin. Just as he told Abraham when he said, Look at the stars, so shall your descendants be. I, read a po- I heard a podcast the other day that just really got me um, on the stars. He quoted a song um, that I had never heard before, a beautiful song, um, that when Abraham looked up and saw the stars, one of those stars was you, and one of those stars was me. It wasn't by accident. God knew all of our names before the foundation of the world. We were written on the Urim and the thumb of the priest's breastplate when he went to Calvary to offer himself as a sacrifice. He's gathering in all of his stars, all of his people, all of his children, so that we might fellowship with God. And the point of all of it is that we might know that there is now no more sacrifice for sin. The way of the Holy of Holies is made clear. And yes, we only see it by faith now. We're not with him face to face. In Babylon, the Babylonian creation story teaches that God created man because he needed slaves to work the earth. How often do we think that same way? That isn't why God created us. God created us so that we could rest in his bosom, be held in his embrace, and understand the depth of his love. And he's working all of creation and everything so that we might know how tremendously he loves us. He loves us so much that he provided a sacrifice. His only begotten son. That echoed what God said of Abraham. Offer your son, your only son, the one whom you love. And when Jesus came into the world, he's called the Son of God, his only Son, the one whom God loves, so that we might know. We spend our whole lives wondering if we've done enough to earn a few moments of rest, a few moments of peace. We lay awake at night and rehearse in our minds every stupid thing we've done all day or for the last 50 years, as long as we can remember. Wondering if we've done enough to make atonement. And all of scripture from beginning to end is given so that we might know that God's provided. And what's the end result? If we have to still provide anything of the sacrifice, we can't ever rest. But what's the end result 
What's the telos? Telos is the Greek word that means the finish line, the end, where we're all heading, what, what this is all about, what we were created for, what we were made for. Listen to how it's put in Scripture. This is the lover waiting for her beloved to come. Song of Solomon, chapter 2. Ah, I hear my lover coming. He's leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a swift gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he is behind the wall, looking through the window, peering into the room. My lover said to me, Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. Look, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. The flowers are springing up. The season of singing birds has come. The cooing of turtle doves fills the air. The fig trees are forming young fruit. The fragrant grapevines are blossoming. Rise up, my darling. Come away with me, my fair one. My dove is hiding behind the rocks, behind an outcrop of the cliff. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and your face is lovely. Notice this beautiful picture where the whole church, since the time this was written, recognizes this as the telos of the people of God, with God himself, Christ himself, the bridegroom, and we are the bride. This is the end result. Right now, we're just waiting to hear his voice. But the end result is the lover's embrace. Not so that we can have a bunch, not so God can have a bunch of slaves in heaven. But think about the ramifications of this to everything in our lives. I think the church has forgotten everything about this, which is why marriage has turned into uh, a warfare between the sexes, and it's all about who's in charge. That's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about resting in each other's arms under the beautiful blue sky, longing to hear the voice of your lover or the beloved. Yeah, there's sin in the world, so we've got to work towards that. We've got to humble ourselves. But when the consummation comes, the sin is taken away because God provided the sacrifice. This is what we long for. Have you thought about what it means to live as if you are truly loved by God, deeper than anyone else can possibly love you? I forget which preacher said it, but he said the greatest sin that we can commit as the people of God is to doubt how much love God has for us. Something to think about. This is why God has given us this. Our, in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is our confession of faith here in the church, they understood that. This is why when it goes through the exposition of the Apostles' Creed, it talks about why was he hung on the tree? Why was he? Uh, uh, why? Uh, why did? Why did he have to be crucified instead of suffer another death? Why did he have to be condemned by Pontius Pilate as judge? And the answer all the way through is that we might know that he took upon himself the curse that lay upon me that we might know that. This means there is no more sacrifice for sin. There's a reason why Satan is called the accuser, because Satan is constantly saying, oh, that's not enough. That's not enough. The penalty's not paid yet. God hates you. Look at you. God doesn't want anything to do with you. Go work harder. Do some more. You're not doing near enough. And unfortunately, that's the message given by the vast majority of churches out there. You need to work harder. You need to do more. 
You need to give more. You need to sacrifice more. You need to get your wife in line. You need to get your kids in line. You need to submit more. You need to, and on and on and on and on, the list of everything we've got to do. When the message of the gospel is, the Lord will provide. That's the old covenant. New covenant, the Lord has provided. If I was bright enough with the Hebrew, I could parse that just like that, but I'm not. I have to change that future tense to past tense. I don't remember how to do that. It's an irregular verb, so it's harder to do. Um, anyway, with that, we'll close. Let's close in prayer, and then we'll take questions. Our Father in heaven, what a tremendous joy this is that you have provided a sacrifice for sin, and there is now no more con sacrifice for sin. The way to the Holy of Holies is open, and the day will come when we will be raised from the dead, and we will rise to meet you in the air, and we will see you face to face, and rest in your bosom forever going about our lives and the things that were done and using our gifts and our abilities to praise and glorify you forever and ever and to join our song in with the angels of heaven come quickly lord jesus until then lift up our heads give us hope and peace and faith in jesus name amen